0: Who said all? Yeah. That would make it a Christmas to remember, I can assure you. You get Pastor Vince and I up here, and we could do a duet, right? So, I did want to just uh, call your attention to behind me up that sat there, all wrapped up beautifully in, in gold paper with a bow and so forth. And there were other smaller packages around it. And many of you wondered, I suppose, what was inside that package. I certainly did. And um, the package got unwrapped this morning. And what you see behind me is what was inside the package, and that is a manger with a small child. It is God's gift to us on this Christmas morning. About 2,000 years ago, by order of the most powerful man in the world, an insignificant Jewish man and his pregnant teenage wife set out on a long and harrowing journey. They were leaving by decree of Caesar Augustus, the town in which they lived, called Nazareth, in the north part of the nation of Israel. And they were travel south to the little village of Bethlehem, about 80 miles Bethlehem is located in the hills just beyond sight, the city of Jerusalem, capital, that great land of Israel. Joseph and Mary would arrive there in Bethlehem, and the scripture tells us that they searched for a place to stay and could find none, and so ended up making their home, as it were in a place where the animals were kept. It was there that Mary gave birth to her first child, a son. They named him Jesus. This child's birth was the culmination of all the ancient prophecies given to the people of God over thousands of years. They found their focus and this small child born to these insignificant people in a backwater village in a remote land of the Roman Empire. According to the Apostle Paul, this great event took place at exactly the right moment. In the fullness of time, Paul says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It was an amazing event. It was heralded by angels sent from heaven. They appeared to some lowly shepherds out in the Judean hills, keeping watch over their flock at night. The angelic messenger said to them, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. What an event. And yet it went unnoticed by most. It is only those who have eyes to see with faith that can recognize the providential hand of God that would lead up to this great event. What I want to do this morning with you in our time together is is to go back through these ancient prophecies, the prophecies leading up to the birth of Messiah, so that we might be reminded once again of the glory of Christmas. The ancient prophecies present a, a twofold picture of Messiah, they present a picture of him as a suffering servant and as a reigning king. This complex picture was a mystery to the ancients, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.11. A mystery that was only unraveled for us as we came to understand his two comings. First, as that suffering servant, and then again, my friends. As the great and reigning Davidic king. It all begins in a garden. A very long time ago. Open your Bibles. To Genesis chapter 3. Our journey begins in the garden of Eden. The ancient prophecies of Messiah. God spoke this universe into existence, Genesis 1 tells us. And he did so in six days. And in the sixth day, he crowned his creation with man, Adam. From man's side, he made a helpmate suitable for him, Eve. God placed them into the garden that he had prepared and he he gave them a task to have oversight, to have stewardship of this creation of his. Symbolized here in the garden and their responsibilities therewith. Wasn't long though before Adam and Eve chafed under the loving reign and rule of god the evil one seized that opportunity and came to the woman and tempted her he challenged her to to weigh god's good word to them with his lie and the woman swallowed the bait she took the fruit of the tree that had been forbidden to mankind. And she ate, it says, and she gave to her husband with her, he also ate. And the eyes of both of them were open. And they plunged into ruination. And with them, the human race. But God did not leave the race ruined. God gave them a promise of a deliverer. We find the promise in chapter 3 of Genesis and in verse 15. Immediately following the, the ruin of mankind, God steps in to give them a promise. Speaking here through the serpent to Satan who stands behind him, he says, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel the first prophecy of the deliverer there's a number of things that we could lift out of this quickly as we begin to paint a composite picture and that's what i really want to do with you this morning is as look upon prophecy upon prophecy and and paint, the, and paint this great composite picture of messiah Immediately we can see that it is God who will send the Deliverer. I will put enmity between you, he says. It is God who will send forth the Deliverer. It is his gift. This Deliverer will be a man. He shall bruise you on the head. This man will spring from the seed of a woman. Now that's puzzling, isn't it? Normally we speak of the seat of a man, but Messiah will proceed from the seat of a woman, he says. And he will crush Satan at a terrible cost to himself. With this small snippet of information, Adam and Eve, ejected from the garden, begin to seek to fulfill the mandate anyway. In chapter 4 and verse 1 the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, and I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. An alternative translation for that verse is, I have gotten a man, the Lord. I suspect actually that that's a better translation. That immediately Eve and Adam are looking for the deliverer, that one who will come and redeem them. And thus, in the birth of their first child, they have tremendous hope that the curse will be undone. And yet that first son turns out to be the worst of possible disappointments. And yet the promise goes on. We turn to Genesis 9 and and verse 26. To see the next installment in the picture. Of course we know that in. Genesis chapter 6, 7 and 8. God has sent a flood to destroy the earth because of its wickedness. Save one man and his children and their wives. Noah alone is rescued. Chapter 7 verse 1. Noah's three sons, sham Ham and Japheth. It is through them that the earth will be repopulated. We're familiar with chapter 9 and the fact that Ham dishonors his father. Because of that, a curse is pronounced upon the descendants of Ham. But a blessing is pronounced, verse 26 Upon his son Shem and his posterity. He also said blessed be the Lord the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Cain be his servant. This prophecy of Noah speaking directly to his three sons and whom through whom these three sons would come the major branches of humanity through which the world would be repopulated my friends we are either a son of ham a son of Japheth or a son of Shem these are the three lines of humanity it is through Shem that the blessing flows and it narrows through him down to a man by the name of Abraham. Chapter 12 and verse 1. The descendants of Shem narrowed down to a Bedouin king by the name of Abraham. And God does the most astounding thing, Genesis 12 He makes a covenant with this man, this idolater, and he calls him out and calls him to faith. And he makes the most amazing promises to him. Genesis 12 and verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The promise flows through Noah to the line of Shem. To the family of Abraham. And through Abraham to his son, Isaac, chapter 17. And verse 21, God says, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Through Isaac, the promise flows to Jacob. Genesis 25 and verse 23. Rebekah has conceived twins, it says. And the Lord said to her, verse 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Malachi, it says, Esau I hated, Jacob I loved. The promise flows to Jacob given to Adam and Eve through Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The promise continues to flow. The hope of a deliverer continues to burn brightly in the hearts of the people. In Genesis 49, we see something most interesting. Jacob on his deathbed speaking to his sons, offering them blessings, prophetically so. And he makes this most interesting statement in chapter 49 and verse 10 to one of his 12 sons, a son by the name of Judah. And he says, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Fascinating. Fascinating. This one coming through the Semitic branch of humanity, through the promise to Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob, and now to his son Judah. The coming one will proceed from a divine line, a line of kings from the tribe of Judah, a coming king. God's people go into exile into Egypt and suffer horribly for 400 years. And there, in the midst of their suffering. God sends a deliverer to them, Moses, to rescue his people, to, to draw them out, and to judge the Egyptians. And so he institutes a sacrifice and a ceremony that the nation is to keep in perpetuity. Exodus chapter 13, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12. He tells them to slay a lamb. It's odd. Kill a lamb, not any old lamb, but a a particular lamb, a, a special lamb, a lamb without blemish, without fault. Slay this lamb and and take its blood. Splash it on the doorpost and the lentil of your home. So when the death angel passes through Egypt to slay the firstborn of the land, he will pass over the houses upon which is the blood of this lamb and you shall be saved. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Very strange. Very strange. Annually, you are to slay a lamb. Not any old lamb, a special lamb. You go through this elaborate ritual. Year after year after year. Why? Because it is your deliverance. It is the atonement for your sin. God will pass over your sins. It was it the death of this animal, this innocent one. My friends, the thoughtful people of Israel never believed that the lamb took away their sins. They never thought the death of an innocent lamb would atone for the sin of their soul, that it would somehow undo the curse on Adam. Never. Hebrews chapter 10 makes that exceedingly clear. They knew it was nothing but a reminder, a promise of the one to come who someday would free them from their sin. And so year after year, they participate in the ceremony. They have the ritual and they are reminded again of the ancient promise. A deliverer is coming. John 1 and verse 29 tells us, you remember? John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one. And so this coming deliverer through the royal line of Judah will atone for our sin somehow. Somehow. In some way. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy. The people are camped to the east of the Jordan River, they have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. Their unwillingness to take God and his word and enter into the land. And every man of that generation above the age of 20 falls dead in the wilderness. All except Moses, Joshua and Caleb, right? Moses, the great deliverer, the one who took the nation as it were on his back and and carried them out of the land. The one who has acted as their mediator between they and God. The man whose face shines when he's in the presence of God in such a way that he has to put a veil over it when he comes out from the presence of God to speak to the people. The people are terrified. Moses, cover your face. Moses. The greatest prophet himself cannot enter into the land because of his faithless act. And there with the tribes gathered on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to enter in, he, he gives the law to them a second time to prepare them to enter into the land. And he says, I am not going to be going in with you. I will die outside the land for my sin. But do not worry. Do not worry. Chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Moses How will we go into the land? What will we do without you? Do not fear. God will raise up another just like me. The coming one will be a prophet, we're told. Fascinating. A prophet like Moses you know from your readings in the New Testament, right? That was a constant question on the minds of the people. Are you the prophet? Long foretold. He will be a prophet like Moses. But not only will he be a prophet, he will be a priest. Psalm 110. And verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. Art, I agree with you. I love to hear the sound of pages. That, by the way, is the reason we don't display all these scriptures on the screen for you. You know that? We want you to find them in your Bible. Psalm 110, in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. That strange and enigmatic man. Who appears for but a few verses in Genesis 14 and then passes off the page of Scripture again, only to reappear here in this psalm. This coming one will be a priest. Not a temporal priest like the Levitical priests. Like those who are of descent from Aaron. The ones who cannot continue in their priestly duties because of death. This priest will be a priest, it says, forever. Forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, he will come from outside the Levitical priesthood. Again, as the writer of the Hebrews says, a change of priesthood necessitates a change of covenant. The deliverer will be a prophet. He will be a priest. And he will be a king. 2 Samuel chapter 7. By the way, you could have a prophet and a king. You could have a priest and a prophet. You could have... Be careful what I'm saying. What you can't have is a king and a priest. What you can't have is a king and a priest. Not until God sends the deliverer. Prophet, priest, and king. Second Samuel 7. Another amazing passage of scripture. David has consolidated his kingdom. David, by the way, is a descendant of the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe. It's of the tribe of Judah. He has consolidated his kingdom now. In chapter 6, he has, he has desired to bring the Ark of the Covenant into his capital city, but he has been cavalier in the way that he has approached it. And the holiness of God has flashed out. David is terrified. After thinking it over for a while, David now realizes, that if I'm going to do it, I need to do it God's way. So at the end of chapter 6, the ark is brought properly and safely into the capital city of Jerusalem. And David's heart desire is to to build a temple for God. It sort of dawns on David. He says, you know, I'm, I'm living in this amazing palace. The ark of God is traveling around in a tent. I want to build a temple for him and and the prophet Nathan says, David, go for it. Do what's on your heart. And that night God comes to Nathan and he says, go back and and tell him no. Tell him no. Chapter 7 verse 5. Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house? to dwell in verse 11 the end of the verse the lord also declares to you that the lord will make a house for you david you're going to build me a house no i will build you a house and so he makes a covenant with this man verse 12 the following When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. When I removed whom I removed from before you, David, you will have a son. It is your son who will build the temple for me. And I will give your kingdom to your son and his descendants in perpetuity. If they sin, they will be chastised. But I will never do to them what I did to Saul. When I stripped his throne from him. Verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established Forever. A throne, a house, and a kingdom, David, in perpetuity. A house It's talking about physical descendants. It's the line of David. David, there will always be a son that will come forth from your line. A kingdom, David, that is a realm to rule over. There will always be a Davidic kingdom. A throne, David. Your ruling authority. The Davidic dynasty. Forever. Forever. This coming one. This coming king. This one long foretold, long promised, has now been narrowed down to the line of David. The line of David. By the way, the only way this coming one can accomplish what has been promised is if he is divine. And so, back to one hundred and ten, Psalm one hundred and ten, and verse one. Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, David writes, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord says to my Lord. How can David speak under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? And call his son, Lord. The Pharisees were unwilling to answer the question. And the Gospels tell us from that point on, they no longer questioned Jesus. The only way David's son can be his Lord is if he's divine. People say Jesus never declared his divinity. Oh, my friends, he most certainly did. He quoted Psalm 110 in verse one. For that very purpose. The deliverer. Will be divine. This divine deliverer will rule the world. Isaiah chapter two and verse four. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. He will judge between the nations. He will rule the world. This king from the line of David From the tribe of Judah. From the branch of humanity that descends from Shem. Who is the promised one who will crush Satan's head. The prophet tells us will rule the world. Chapter 7. And verse 14. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Hmm. He is divine. He is the seed of the woman. He is to be born of a virgin, the prophet says. God with us, stepping into space and time, born of a virgin woman. Chapter 9. The prophet continues, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, speaking of his preexistence. The government will rest on his shoulders. That's how he will rule the world. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And in case you are wondering, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's never in doubt. It is never in doubt. He is divine, and he will sit on the throne of David, this coming one. Chapter 11, verse 2. He will bear the theocratic anointing. 11.2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will be equipped by the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God to fulfill his ministry. He will be the servant of Yahweh. Chapter 42. And they have a very gentle and unpretentious ministry. Fascinating. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Whoever heard of a king? Who ever heard of a king that a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick, a a flickering candle wick he will not snuff out? Who's ever heard of a king like that? We've heard of kings with armies. This king will be the gentle one. The gentle one. Anointed with the Spirit of God, who will come to restore the nation of Israel and and bring light to the Gentiles, chapter 49. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Wow. I don't know about you, but I am exceedingly glad that that prophecy is there. I mean, we're talking about a Jewish Messiah, isn't that right? Comes through the line of Shem. Through the tribe of Judah, through the house of David. They didn't get any more Jewish than that. He's going to restore the ancient people. He will sit on David's throne forever. He will restore the land of Israel. What about me? I will make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This coming one is for all of mankind. All of mankind. What an amazing gift. An amazing gift. He will suffer horribly. Chapter 53. He will crush your head, Satan. You shall bruise his heel. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. fall on him. This coming king, this gentle one, this one who will not snap off a bent twig, won't snuff out a flickering candle wick, will bear my sin and yours on that awful cross. Daniel chapter 7. See, sin, in order to be dealt with, cannot just be atoned for. It must be crushed, it must be destroyed. All who would set themselves in opposition to God. A holy God must someday be crushed. And so we have the ancient prophet Daniel. hmm? Of all the prophecies, his are the most mysterious. I praise God for the interpretation of those prophecies built into the book, because otherwise I'm not sure what we would make of them. You remember how the book begins. Essentially, the book, by the way, is just one series of prophecies after another that all speak of the exact same sequence of events. It is a preview of the world. The great king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, do you remember? In his dream, he sees a statue, and the statue is is made of various materials, metals. Starts with a head of gold. We have a picture of it there for you. They didn't have cameras in those days, so I don't know how we got that picture. Head of gold, body of silver, thighs and midriff of bronze, legs of iron, feet and toes of a mixture of iron and clay, you Remember? Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all of the soothsayers, all of the wise men, all of the interpreter of dreams in his entire realm unless somebody can tell him what this thing means. God enables Daniel to interpret the dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, there are going to be a series of empires, world empires. Each empire will gobble the one that precedes it. It begins with Babylon, you are the head of gold. A little later, there's another vision. This time it's of beasts. These various beasts. We have a lion with wings. We have a, a bear with ribs in its mouth. We have a, a two-headed leopard. and We have something so terrifying it cannot be described. Same for world empires, this time as ravenous beasts. The statue is smashed, you remember, in the dream. By a stone cut without hands. That grows to a mountain that fills the world, the dream says. There's a kingdom coming, Daniel tells us, that will smash all of these pretender empires. Chapter 7, verse 13. After the vision of the beasts, Daniel keeps looking and he is given this glimpse into the throne room. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold were the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There are going to be some impressive world empires. Babylon. Medo-Persia. Greece, and Rome. And each will swallow, as it were, the prior empire. But there is a world dominion coming which will crush all of them. It will smash the statue. It will crush the beast. It will be headed up by one like a son of man. What was Jesus most... Favorite self-designation in the Gospels. Do you remember? Son of man. Son of man. The coming king will receive an eternal kingdom. Where is this king going to be born, by the way? If If I wanted to find him, where would I look? You would look in Micah, tells us Micah 5 2, right? We've got to get to Micah, there we go. It's back there in your Bible where all the pages are stuck together Micah chapter 5. By the way, I had this photo put up here intentionally. When I read Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, where will the coming one be born? But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Where will the king be born? He will be born in a little insignificant backwater village named Bethlehem. There's a picture of it. Oh, wait a minute. That's actually modern Bethlehem. Not so backwater, not so small, highly commercialized. What a shame. What a shame. Born in the insignificant village of Bethlehem. Five miles outside the city walls of the capital of the nation. Matthew's gospel tells us that by the time of his birth, the nation had grown so cold that they couldn't care less to check it out. This one will enter Jerusalem humbly according to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You are living, by the way, in the white spaces between the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. When he comes the first time, this long-promised one will be humble and mounted on the foal of a donkey. When he comes again, he will shatter the nations, and establish his dominion from sea to sea. Because when he comes again, he will fight for Israel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. He will fight for the nation. Meek and mild, humble and gentle. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he goes to the slaughter, the prophets say. And yet there will be a day when he will shatter all opposition. And purge his ancient people. Malachi chapter 3. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. This one comes to purify the nation. You know, it's a little wonder, little wonder that Mary's response to the birth and life of Jesus, as recorded by Luke, is she treasured and pondered these things in her heart. Can you imagine? And she looked into the face of that child with all of this and more. By the way, we've not exhausted this. We've merely dipped in. All of this and more floating around in her mind. King. The righteous judge. The preserver and protector of his ancient people. The one who will die like a Passover lamb. She looks in the face of that child. She ponders it in her heart. Apostle Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 2. Just listen. He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, excuse me, to the glory of God the Father. Wow. What a benediction. Friends, this is the glory of Christmas. This is what it's all about. For unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given. How will you respond this year to the glory of Christmas? Will you bow your knee? Will you confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you cannot do that, if you have not come to that place in your life, we have come to see the glory of Jesus. That may this Christmas morning be your day. Paul is very clear. He says that every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. It is unavoidable. By faith, this side of the grave, his children bow and confess. Those who persist in unbelief will still bow and will still confess in the presence of that terrifying king who comes to judge all wickedness. I urge you, if you have not yet bowed, if you have not yet confessed the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, today is your day. We're going to sing here in a minute and when we finish, people will be up and and milling around. You come. I'll be right down here. You come. You come and let let us open the word together. Let us reason together. Though your sin be as scarlet, it can be as white as snow i pray that you would believe on the lord jesus christ let's pray our father in a very abbreviated way we have we have ransacked the ancient scriptures highlighting the prophecies